founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Lauren Nutbello, the managing partner and president of Ready, Set, Rocket. With an education background from Salisbury University, Lauren joined the agency as its fourth team member in 2012, beginning as an account manager, then growing to her current role as president and partner in 2020. Ready, Set, Rocket is a full-service digital marketing and creative agency based in New York City. Ready, Set, Rocket is a data-driven agency on a mission to forge a better future. They create connected experiences to help brands navigate the change in today's modern world. As a full-service agency set on shaking up the status quo, Ready, Set, Rocket's values of wellness in the workplace and our people-first culture has won them many awards as they continue to grow and do great work year after year. Here to share her journey and lessons learned along the way is Lauren. So Lauren, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. What I'm curious about is the rise from one of the first employees and now finding yourself leading the ship. So how'd you get involved in the company and what did that look like? Yeah. So um, one of the co-founders, Aaron, basically just reached out to me on LinkedIn one day because we had a connection in common and uh, asked me to grab a coffee. I always make fun of him because he was 45 minutes late to that coffee. So I was on coffee number two when he got there. Um, and we just had a very long conversation where, you know, he was just vetting my general kind of style of account management. And, um, you know, I was fairly junior at that point. I was maybe one or two years of experience. So, you know, I was sort of just looking for an opportunity where I thought it was really exciting to join a startup that I could really make a big impact. And it wasn't like joining, you know, a big agency where maybe in a year or two I could get promoted to account director. It was sort of like the upside was potentially you know, showing what I could do and making a big impact and really growing with a company that I believed in. So it was very much a run with the wolves type of thing. Um, I joined, uh, I was, it was myself and one other person in the partners. Um, And I was the first person to really be, you know, talking to clients and things like that. And very quickly, I realized I could make of this whatever I wanted to. So, you know, I was pitching new service offerings that we didn't necessarily have in house at the time. But, you know, as long as we could kind of speak the language and bring in the right partners to facilitate that all of a sudden those were huge revenue opportunities for us. Um, so over time, I think it was, you know, half about just realizing that, you know, I needed to run with them and make sure I understood their vision and then figuring out how I can take that vision and evolve it. And as long as I'm driving profit and I'm driving growth in the business and I'm helping to contribute to the culture, um, that this was as much mine as it was theirs. So, Um, I think that shift in mentality really made a huge difference as far as going from, you know, making partner in 2014 as looking at myself as a junior partner to looking at myself as an equal with them, where slowly I moved toward in um, late 2019, they promoted me to president and said, you know, we believe in you and your vision for how you can take this thing to the next level. And since then, we've doubled in revenue and, uh, you know, grown profits by four to five X. So it's been a really exciting few years. Heck yeah. So uh, what I'm curious about is when you first joined, why did you join? You mentioned that you saw the, the, the opportunity for to get in early and to be able to kind of put your fingerprints on things. What were you doing before? Were you in a similar industry and this was kind of uh, a lat- somewhat of a lateral move that you can move further forward or were you in a different industry before this? Yeah, I was in the same industry. Um, I was in actually, you know, a mid-sized boutique agency as an account manager and um, 
I was actually working in a very small satellite office in New York. Most of the team on that team was in Florida. So it was just in a place that I wanted to find something more rooted in New York. Um, and I remember I had an offer from one of the big agencies at the time that I was really excited about. Um, and I had this offer and I, I sat down with my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband. And he was like, okay, well, what's the best case scenario at this place? At, at, the big agency. And I was like, Oh, maybe I get a, you know, a big promotion in a year and I work on a really cool account. And he's like, what's the best case scenario at this other place? Ready, set rocket. And I was like, well, I mean, these guys seem super smart and I'm stoked about their vision. And I think, you know, if, if this works out the way I think it could, I can really show what I can contribute. And, you know, I could really take off with this place. And I think that was sort of the selling point for me, right. was like, yeah, I'm going to need to prove myself, but there's going to be a real opportunity for growth. I'm not just going to be stuck in a machine and kind of a cog in a wheel. Yeah. That's the interesting perspective I'd like to get from is now sitting in a president seat. Um, you come in and it's someone else's baby, right? It's, Hey, we created this. This is you know, our blood, blood, sweat and tears. And you have earned their trust over time to be elevated with more responsibility and then eventually seen as an equal. That's a tough thing to do. What do you think in retrospect created that trust and created that, um, willingness for them to give you more responsibility and start to even share the baby in a sense. Right. Um, I think for me, it was just about making sure I was always thinking about it from my perspective and from their perspective. I think having, you know, my kind of core skill set be in initially account management helped with that, where I think I always thought about them as my like internal clients. And mm. I think I thought about it the same way I did with my my clients when I was managing accounts, right? It was always, if I'm advocating for what I think is best for the business, I'm never doing anything wrong. And I think knowing the time and the place to bring the things up that I thought we were doing wrong or the things that I thought they were doing wrong or that, you know, I thought were big opportunities for us or where I thought we were kind of like trying to solve the same problem with the same solution over and over and being shocked that we weren't uh, solving it. Um, you know, I think all of those things, if, I, if they're rooted in not trying to be right, but vetting it against like, do I actually think this is what's right? I think they could always see those intentions and it didn't mean that we were always going to agree, but it meant that it built a respect amongst us where they knew I respected them. And I think there was a tremendous amount of respect that came from them. Mm. Um, and over time, they just let me make a lot of those decisions without even needing to weigh in with them. And I think that just that trust in, you know, you go from overseeing accounts initially on my side to then overseeing accounts in production and basically the front end of the business and doing that effectively. And then it was, okay, take over the whole operation. And, you know, we're kind of going to take a step back from the business where they haven't really been very involved for the last two years. And I think it was sort of like not getting ahead of myself, not trying to own everything, realizing that there are areas that I shouldn't weigh in on, you know, earlier on before I was president. And I think keeping that clarity of focus on, you know, what are the things that I need to impact? What, yeah. what am I being measured against based on that? And where do I want to like step aside and not be weighing in? So it doesn't look like I'm just talking to hear myself talk. I think no. all of those things just help you to build up trust over time where they kind of realize that their vision is respected and eventually that vision might evolve. Right. And it became a shared vision over time. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we, I don't think I actually did mention this before, but my outside of the podcast, what me and my partner do is, is coaching for fast growing companies, right. For leadership teams, executives, that kind of thing. And so trust is one of those things that we're often being asked about, whether it's how do I get my team to trust me more, or maybe it's more, someone in your position saying, how do I get my manager or how do I get the founder to trust me more? And so we do, you know, we have this thing called the trust equation where there's a few variables you could look at first would be like, you know, how, 
do you feel like that you are demonstrating competency that they trust your skill level? Another might be reliability. Do you turn things in on time? Is your yes really a yes? Is your no really a no? Things like that. But the secret variable is all of that's divided by what we call self-orientation. And I think that's what you're talking about. Like it's somewhat subjective, but if in marriage, in friendship, in business, if I get the impression that every decision and thought and word is mainly filtered by you, meaning what's in it for you, it's all about you. It's going to sacrifice. I'm not going to be able to trust you as much versus if I feel like, man, this person is really thinking about the greater good or thinking about what's best for the company. And I hear that a lot when you're talking is that you were intentionally lowering your self orientation and that that had a very big positive impact. Is that, is that kind of hit the nail on the head? Absolutely. And I think that also helps you to police yourself, right? Cause there are times when you're, you have big personalities in the room and we all had our own opinions on things and, you know, we're all, I would say pretty smart people. So it's not like there's only one way to do things. And I think right. at times when you are arguing about something or when you do have kind of misaligned view on things, I think even taking a step back and assessing yourself of like, am I just trying to win this argument or just prove the point because I want to be right because I'm annoyed at this person or because this thing <laughs> happened last week? Or is it because I truly think that this is going to better our chance of meeting X goal? And I think when you bring it back yeah. to the goal, it's just so much easier to be much more objective and bring the subjectivity out of it, right? And that tension actually is a positive thing. When when I can feel like everyone in this room, even if passionately, is arguing simply because they think it's the best thing for the company, it's actually a very positive energy in a sense of like, right. it's a very productive energy is maybe a way of putting that. It's a very productive energy. But the moment you start to think you're just wanting to be right or you're trying to settle a score with somebody or whatever, it's no longer productive anymore. Absolutely. And I think trying to scale that kind of healthy tension is a challenge and a challenge that I've even been trying to focus on is that at times it's sort of like the loudest voice or the most senior voice will be the one someone just blindly listens to. And I think pushing the team on, hey, if you disagree with something, knowing what you've been sort of tasked with achieving on behalf of the agency or contributing to on behalf of the agency, if you feel like you're getting a directive that doesn't allow you to do that, you should always push back because getting that perspective from you who's going to has a different experience here, contributes in a different way here to challenge why someone's asking you to do something or to challenge, you know, hey, I think that there's a better way to do this. We're all mm. going to be more productive and healthy tension is so important to sustain. Obviously, there's a fine line between that and just, you know, the sort of just constant butting heads that can cause toxicity or inefficiency. But I think, you know, getting people comfortable with pushing back and making sure they're not on the speeding train of like, well, this person told me to do this, so I did it. I mm. feel like that's really the difference between, you know, constantly being able to optimize the business or the account or whatever you're working on versus it just becoming something that like can drift way off course and no one questions it until it's too late. Right. Yeah, man. I, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I'll mention it again because I think it was probably a hundred episodes ago as crazy as that sounds, but I have a friend in medicine who's a doctor at uh, children's healthcare of Atlanta. And we were just having a conversation about his world. You know, he wanted to pick my brain from a business perspective or from a, you know, a coaching perspective, some things that he wished would change in the medical industry. And one was uh, medical error. You know, it's the thing that they really track, which I was pleased to hear. Like they spend a lot of energy thinking about medical error, you know, which is basically uh, unfortunate injury that had nothing to do with the illness or the accident, but had to do with a slip of concentration or a misdiagnosis, right. whatever. Right. 
And one of the things that they found through like extensive research, I think it was Duke University, was a culture of fear, like a hierarchical kind of culture of fear where you're afraid to say something because your boss might get mad and fire you or whatever. Uh, they had this case study of where it literally led to uh, instruments like scalpels and things like that being uh, cleaned in uh, oil instead of antiseptic. Like, and the chain reaction was wild. Basically, several layers of people saw something was off, but were afraid to speak up. And so they just said, I don't know, maybe maybe we changed what we clean stuff in. And so it looks different. It smells different, whatever. But basically, it was hydraulic oil that was supposed to be going out of the building, got mixed in with the same canisters of antiseptic that was coming into the building. And so they had this spike of infections and a spike of whatever and when they figured out what's going on, they were basically like, why didn't you say something? You know, tech, cleaning crew, whatever. Right. And they, they realized it actually wasn't their fault. It was the fault of this kind of fear that it permeated the culture where no one was able or felt free to say something, especially down at like the hourly level. Because they're like, right. man, I'm only making $12 an hour. Like, who am I to speak up? And I might get fired for this and I can't lose my job. I've got a kid to feed. And so it just makes me think, like you said, like if we don't catch this now – the ramifications could be something happens that could have totally been avoidable, but someone was afraid to contradict their boss or was afraid to point out something that seems obvious to them, but not obvious to everybody else. Does that make sense? Right. Absolutely. Or even down to, you know, I'm always pushing with our team. Don't be afraid to ask what in your head you're telling yourself is a stupid question because I've said to my team, like so many times I've been on a call where, you know, I'll join a call with a client and I'm not normally on client calls, but you know, I'll pop in and, I'll be like, this might be a dumb question because I have not been by any means in the weeds, but blah. And the client's like, I'm so glad you brought that up because we never thought about that. And, yeah. blah, blah, blah. and it's like, I feel like all the time that you think it's something that, you know, somebody's going to be like, oh, why'd you ask that? It's already this. Most of the time you're injecting an insight or a perspective that at least makes people rethink what might be happening and like gut check what they're doing. You might end up doing the same thing, but you're yeah. thinking about it from a different perspective. And I feel like just that sort of, Asking the question and feeling comfortable asking the question can make such a big difference in a relationship, in an output of something, in the impact of something. And like you said, even just culturally, like everyone getting used to feeling comfortable with that type of, you know, gut check on things, even if it's not the thing that they feel they're the owner or the utmost expert on. Isn't that interesting that we seem to have like a default feeling or belief around asking questions that it that it implies weakness or that it implies like um that you don't know what you're talking about or like i was having a conversation so one of the clients that i serve is a digital marketing agency out of atlanta and i was talking with one of the account managers and she was talking about how do i deal with this feeling sometimes i don't actually know the way forward or i don't you know i don't have the answer the client wants but i feel like i need to to demonstrate that i know what i'm talking about and i was like that's the problem right there you're assuming you can't just ask a good question that if you right. don't know the way forward yet, there might be a lack of clarity yet on what the real problem is or what their, you know, their goals are or whatever. And I just hear that over and over again. I see it in myself sometimes. Like we don't feel the permission just to ask a good question. Does that make sense? Like we have some association with it being, that means I'm stupid if I ask a question or I'm disagreeable if I ask a question. And I don't think that's the case. Absolutely. And I think I, it's like you want to sort of train them on the fact that actually the more the more you can make the person on the other side of the table either, you know, sound smarter or think in a different way 
those are the best ways to add value, right? A lot of it is yeah. just listening and helping someone to sort of come to their own conclusions versus having to be the one to come to the table with a conclusion. Because most of the time, especially in that case, when you're talking about client services, it is just about getting the right information out of the client and then figuring how you can help them to solve that problem. But a lot of times it's half the work is figuring out what problem you're trying to solve because a lot of times what somebody comes to you with isn't actually what you're trying to solve. Yeah. It's about really understanding what you're actually trying to get at, you know? Well, I don't know about you, but anytime someone's shown that genuine curiosity in me and asked has asked a lot of questions, I typically feel very good. Like I feel like personally very good about it. I'm like, oh, they're really curious about my business or they're showing a lot of attention to making sure they understand me. Like I end up feeling more trust towards a person, not less trust if they're asking a lot of questions. Absolutely. And even just to contextualize, like they actually understand what I do or they understand yes. the right variables. Like I feel like there's just so much currency to asking the right questions and that elevates someone off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm curious, you know, you got to ride the journey from employee number four to where you guys are today. What what did you see was part of the um, – so here's what – let me set this question up. Uh, typically, that's in the danger zone still of a company failing, right? Just in those early days, there's only a few employees. Like they're still subject to potentially the statistic of another good idea that didn't work out. From being on the inside, why do you think you all were able to actually grow out of that? Not that you're ever fully out of danger, but you know, grow out of that really early stage to a proven company that's growing and scaling. Uh, when you look back on that, what are some lessons you think you learned? Um, I think the diversity of thinking is what really helped us. We had, you know, um, initially I was the third partner. There were two co-founders. One had a very like e-com data driven background where everything needs to be rooted in fact and everything needs to have a business case. My other business partner was a creative who, you know, was really just the visionary. And then I came in and I was kind of like the overlap of the Venn diagram where I was very, you know, very analytical, very in tune to results and data and making sure we could translate something into, you know, the reasoning behind the business, but also um, needed to be able to set the vision and needed to be able to kind of have this conversation with clients that got them really excited about what we could do for them. And, you know, the mm. things, the things that, that do get people excited, right? The data, well, now data gets people excited, but 10 years ago, people didn't get excited about <laughs> analytics, right? They got excited right. about talking about, you know, the, the spot you were going to produce or, you know, the beautiful creative you were going to put out. So um, I think the fact that all of us always had different perspectives on things, me more operationally and how we would structure things and, you know, how what we were doing and how we were scaling needed to be rooted in, you know, sustainable revenue sources, one, but two, um, things that we could actually sell into clients and ways that we could build clients from at the time we would start off at, you know, a $15,000 project. And, you know, within a year, a year and a half, we would scale that to $500,000 million clients. And that's just because we were always very mindful of really digging in and understanding uh, the client's kind of business objectives and what direction they were trying to take their business. And if, if our conversations were always rooted around, yes, we have this project that we're working on with you, but here are all of these other ways that you could move the needle toward these goals and the things that we should be doing to be able to do that. We really just became business consultants who could also execute through, you know, these sort of, I guess, very broad executional capabilities we had, whether that be building websites and products or, you know, launching bigger campaigns or doing content production for social media or, you know, you name it. Um, but I think by making sure that we were in there with the client and they really 
felt like we cared about their business and we understood their business um, and having the different perspectives internally on how we could go about servicing that. I think that helped us to one sustainably scale where we weren't making hires because we're a services business, making hires for short-term revenue needs that then in six months you're panicking and having to lay people off. We're really proud. We've actually never laid anybody off because of that. So we took a long time to scale up our full-time team, but at the same time, we've really been able to retain our culture because people felt like, you know, they're loyal to us because we're loyal to them. Right. Right. Um, well, I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause that was actually my next question. Just knowing the professional services industry, knowing the, the benefits and the challenges. One I've always seen is the difficulty in forecasting as you're scaling, as you're growing and scaling, it seems to be that there's often a push and pull of like, well, I need more help for this, but if those projects go away, then I'll have too much help. And I'll, you know, how do you all approach that very top, that very topic? Yeah. I mean, to this day, we don't make a hire unless we have at least six months in sustainable income against that service or that person's headcount already lined up. And then obviously looking at just what that looks like beyond that, based on our new biz pipeline and the the dynamic of the revenue that we have lined up already. Like, is it a retainer? Is it a client that does things on a project level that we know is just going to keep filling in? Um, so it's just very much about understanding that, you know, that means we might spend a little extra on outsourcing things to freelancers and paying higher rates and, you know, having to kind of, let's say, use a couple people to make sure that we're able to hedge our bets. Um, mm. But realizing that that in the long run is really going to help us with not bringing on talent that we can't keep on long term um, and the that? sort of ripple effect of that. Oh, no, you're fine. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, would you do that like the, the to pay the higher premium for the freelancer? Would you do that more on the project basis versus the comfort level you would feel on, hey, we just landed a new retainer that's typically at least going to be a year to two years or something like that? That might be more of uh, let's hire somebody. Absolutely. I mean, and if we have a retainer and that's a year to two years, that allows us to just say we have, you know, X amount in revenue tied to this service. So I think one, just planning the resourcing to make sure that we're not, you know, spreading a million resources across that revenue where you kind of water down the ability to say this person is going to be really focused on this thing. Right. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, making sure that we are not uh, sacrificing the quality of what we can support in order to maximize how our allocations are working. So I think we're just always trying to balance those two of like, who do we need on this to be set up for success to make the impact that we know we need to make? And as a small business, we're incentivized to do a great job because the only way they're going to resign with us is if we do drive the business impact for them, right? So I think yeah. the incentives are all aligned there. And then on the other side of things, you know, how do we make sure we're building up our bench and that we have this trusted bench of freelancers on X, Y, and Z services so that mm. as these projects do come up, we have trusted people we've worked with before. We know where their sweet spots are and what types of things are great for them and what aren't. So you're not just pulling random strangers onto things all the time. That's stressful for everybody involved, right? Yeah. Um, so I think we always just try to balance that of like, when does it make sense to be using freelancers and how does that make sure that, you know, we're allowing ourselves to one, put the right resource on things. Um, because at times, and this might be getting a little too deep, but you know, we're a full service agency. We work with every, and we work across industries. We work with liquor brands. We work with finance brands. We work with media brands. We work with professional sports brands. We work with cultural institutions. So, you know, the guy who might be a great writer for Seagram's Gin, probably it won't be the best writer to work on, you know, ex financial institution talking about ETFs or, um, you know, institutional investing. So at times we might have, you know, X amount of revenue for a service set, but the reality is, 
having one person isn't going to have as much value as being able to tap a bench of specialists across the board. So I think we just yeah. try to really balance a lot of different inputs from culture to, you know, quality of work to um, just sort of, I guess, revenue outlook to inform when we're making those decisions. I've got two questions. I'm trying to figure out which one I want to go with first. I'll just pose them both and you can decide what order you want to, you want to address them. But one would be, I'm just curious if you intentionally try to grow and scale the type of client relationships towards something like, um, like retainer versus project, or is it more of a, we kind of just approach it the same and we see what we get. Second question is anytime there is a full service type thing, whether it's in marketing or any other business, I'm just always curious how someone makes the decision. Like what's the metric that would help them make the decision on what we would invest in doing in-house, hiring a permanent team to always handle that versus like, actually we've, we prefer to have a outsourced trusted partner that does that element of our full service thing for us. Right? Like, I'm just curious, like how you make the decision of we want to do that ourselves versus we found a trusted partner. Why would we do that ourselves when we could just work with them on that project? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, what was the first part again? I apologize. <laughs> Are you guys intentionally crafting? Like we actually have a strategy towards, we want the majority of our business to be retained, like a retainer basis versus project, or we're actually okay if either comes through the door. Yeah. I mean, of course, ideal world would be, everything would be a retainer. So we would have full visibility and everything could be, you know, all revenue could be accrued based on full-time employee allocations. And, you know, sort of, you're just paying to have access to a resource. Um, We've definitely seen that earlier on in our business, retainers were much more prevalent. And hmm. in the past few years, a lot of clients want to do things more project-based. Um, you know, I think we look at ourselves as just being flexible to the point that we can support our clients and still represent the goals of our business. Because obviously it doesn't make sense to bring something on if, you know, we can't, we can't make a fair profit off of it or whatever, right? Or it's toxic for our team or it becomes yeah. really stressful to support. Um, so I think what we've been more focused on recently is obviously if we can sell through a retainer and, you know, it's a much larger budget, a lot of times that's really when you're thinking about some clients being comfortable with a retainer is when the budgets are larger. That's amazing. Um, but at times with clients, you know, needing some agility, I think what we've seen be more reasonable and kind of a nice meet in the middle is how can we get a broader commitment of revenue for the year? but not have it be so rigid that it's sort of like use it or lose it. So a lot of times mm. what we'll do is, Hey, we're going to plan each month a couple weeks out or a month out. And we'll align on what we're going to do, what the allocations are associated with that. You know, what the output will be, what we need from you guys in order to get those things done. And if we're aligned on that, that's the set plan. And then we'll do the same thing the next month. So at least, you know, it's not like they're just lining something up arbitrarily for the year with no flexibility. And the reality is, you don't maximize impact out of that investment when that happens. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's been a really nice kind of meet in the middle, especially for our larger clients to make sure they got the flexibility to support their seasonality or, you know, their mm. kind of budget cycles or just, you know, the ins and outs of how their organizations work or when they have bandwidth personally, or they're, they're short staffed. Um, but also give us at least the visibility to be able to lock in resources for at least, you know, let's say with eight weeks visibility, um, and allow us to make sure that we can optimize how that's working in the context of our broader queue and, and all of our client base. Do you think the change you've seen in the last few years where you said earlier on it was majority retainers and now people are, you know, a little more project based? Do you think it's because of the craziness of the last two years? Just the 
you know, COVID and how that impacted people's businesses and the financial downturn, the stock market being crazy. Do you think it's just that, that fear, that hesitation? Like, I just don't feel comfortable committing that much of a budget yet. So I'd rather do it a little commitment at a time. Do you think that's what's going on? Um, I mean, I think that could certainly be a part of it in the last couple of years. And I think maybe that's sped it up. Um, but I definitely saw even before the pandemic that it started. And I think hmm. part of it might've been just, you know, the fragmentation of the agency landscape. I mean, 20 years ago, you know, the whole agency relationship just looked completely different. Most of the big players were only working with huge agencies and the sort of budgetary barrier to entry was much larger. And, you know, you could kind of like just set rules that everybody was going to live by. But all of a sudden, when you have a lot of these smaller boutique agencies coming in, and especially digital agencies coming in, where there was a willingness to be more flexible, there was a willingness to be more agile, you didn't have to work with one agency because of how communications have changed. Mm. I think that just gave brands a bigger opportunity to sort of set the rules that made sense for them and not just for the agency anymore, which frankly, like when I put myself into a client's or brand's shoes, I mean, that makes complete sense, right? Not yeah. just committing to something blindly and, you know, it's not really rooted in how your business actually works. It's rooted in how the agency's business works. Absolutely. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I'm curious when you go from, you know, four or five people to now it sounds like 30 plus people that's a different season of a, that's a different, uh, I mean, it's just a different beast of managing that one culture versus managing the other. Uh, communication becomes more difficult. You know, you're not all just sitting around a desk and it's like, all right, did I even meet the person we just hired? You know, those types of things. Uh, what would you say the challenges are now that are different than maybe the challenges when you were just five to 10 people? Yeah. I mean, uh, I was talking to my business partner about this last week. I think for us, it's twofold. It's, Managing things in a remote culture is completely different than in person. Um, you know, the reality is when we were in person, the music in the office and the outings and the just general vibe between people and the jokes people would make between calls and what you would overhear people talking about, all of that created culture, right? It's not the perks yeah. and the free food and the whatever else. Um, that's not there in remote culture. So I think making sure that as we've grown and had more people managing, that means that they're sort of inherently becoming the culture creators. So I think the challenges have just been on how do we make sure that they understand the vision and the values of the company? How do we make sure they're comfortable kind of policing that, right? And at times that means having tough conversations. That means calling people out when they're acting entitled or when they're, you know, whatever, speaking to someone disrespectfully on a call or whatever. Um, and also just identifying the opportunities to just bring people together, whether that be raising your hand and saying, I want to, you know, fly X, Y, and Z into headquarters because I think there's some friction on this account and, you know, getting in the room together is really going to help us to solve these problems and like improve interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Um, or, you know, there's a million different scenarios, but I think really the big, the big challenges are trying to scale in a remote culture where when we first went remote, we were like, oh my gosh, we didn't, we, we never needed an office. This is crazy. This is amazing. But we were I think 16 full-time people then, and everybody knew each other. Yeah. And then as we started to scale, and I think we just made our 37th hire um, two years later, you know, it's a completely different beast when the humanity is removed in a lot of cases. People yes. aren't as likely to speak up when they're in a Zoom box. Um, they don't understand the person on the other side of the screen in a way that, you know, if you had worked with them 40 hours a week for the last two, three, four years, you would understand them and give them the benefit of the doubt. So I think things fester that didn't fester before, I think, you know, 
there's kind of like a line between the people that were here before and know, know each other better because they happen to be closer versus potentially some of the newer people that are remote. And all of those things are just just an ongoing thing to try to figure out how to solve systemically and not just treat symptoms, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're still we are still trust creatures. Like we, we are still people that have ingrained in us thousands of years of, are you safe or not? Are you going to protect me or not? Are you know, right. are you part of my tribe or not part of my tribe? And I think any kind of distance that, that keeps us from not just formal, but informal, like you talked about rubbing of shoulders, sharing moments that weren't just meetings, but they were, how was your weekend? And we laughed together and whatever. I call it like, I think that distance, makes conspiracy theories in relationships more like a breeding ground, right? Absolutely. It's just easier for me to assume Lauren is whatever out to get me or doesn't like me. If I've never spent any real time with you, I can just make up stories in that gap of knowing you. Right. Right. And And understanding intentions. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we tell people like, Hey, you got to have generous assumptions and all that kind of stuff. But again, some of that's band-aid until we can figure out, what does this new world look like and how do we find that again? You know, are you guys, are you guys, uh, fully virtual, like fully virtual or is it hybrid Some are in the workplace and some not, how are you guys handling that? So we're fully remote with the option for in-person. So we have a small office in Soho. Um, you know, we have enough space for the whole team to come together. We bring everybody together every six months just to make sure, you know, everybody can meet each other in the same room and that there's just team building and collaboration happening. Um, And then we have set schedules to fly people that aren't in New York into New York to meet the team, you know, at set durations, we fly everyone in for quarterly reviews and things like that. Mm. So just trying to make sure that everyone gets to know each other, but it's not the same as when everybody is together consistently. Right. Right. And I think one of my biggest concerns is, I mean, when I think about how I learned to do my job, so much of it was through osmosis, like overhearing the conversation, yeah. sitting in on a meeting, seeing how X and Y talked through this conflict, whatever, right? And, you know, I think for for younger team members and people that, you know, just came out of school or, you know, were very fresh out of school when the pandemic happened and, you know, a lot of companies switched to remote, um, I think that's one of my big stressors is how do we make sure they're going to have the same opportunity and there's not going to be this kind of like, invisible loss in their trajectory or, you know, slowdown in their trajectory because they're Mm. not getting that access and they're not getting that exposure. And yes, they're learning how to do the work, but there's so much to just learning how to be a professional and knowing how to approach conversations and knowing how to conduct yourself in a meeting that is not learned in a specific meeting or, you know, in a zoom box. So I think those are all the things that all of us are struggling with, right. Is like, how do you make sure that you're meeting employee expectations and, you know, everybody wants to be remote and in advertising, everyone is remote. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that I think, I think in person is very important. And I think getting people around a table helps them to understand each other in a way that you're just never going to be able to do completely virtually. But at the same time, I have no interest in setting some arbitrary amount of time that someone needs to be in the office days of week or hours a week, because that's not a strategic reason to bring people together. I just think there's set times where someone needs to be identifying like this is a moment where in-person is going to add value. And those things are going to be kind of identified through the people in the work day to day that are noticing the dynamic between the people or noticing how the work is either being slowed down or, you know, or potentially noticing that something's working really well. And maybe it makes sense to bring everybody around this work or these people in order to make sure that that can kind of be emulated. So I just think there's so much nuance to it that since 
in the time since we all went remote, you realize, you know, yes, we all went remote and we realized we could do all of our jobs through technology, but then add in the human dynamic and all of the things that we used to learn mm. that were sort of invisible. Um, I think that's something we all need to be really focused with to make sure that there's not, you know, a generation of younger employees that get left behind. Absolutely. And I struggle with not wanting to be, not to fall into the trap that many people fall into. If I look back in history of innovation is every new innovation on whatever, there's always that feeling of there's no way this could be as good as it was before. And we're going to lose this and we're going to lose that. But you also struggle with sometimes like, what if you're not wrong? Or like, what if there's an element that like we need to be more serious about? And we're just assuming everything's going to be great without putting real thought into like, okay, guys, I'm cool with it. You know, right. like I, I understand right. there's a lot of benefits and we'll keep moving that way. I don't want to be a stick in the mud, but I do want to figure out what do we do with this loss of human interaction? What do we do with that loss of just rubbing shoulders that carried a lot of value, you know? And I, I think it, you can come off feeling like you're a stick in the mud or you're being anti-progress, but at the same time, I think there's just a, like you said, even client relationships and the fact that like, man, there's the opportunity that this could be a a large percentage of the time you spend on earth. If you think about that in a given week, you are spending a lot of time doing work and that could either feel like it's devoid of meaning and devoid of relationship, or it could be included with meaning included with relationship. And that's what I get afraid of missing is like that. You'd feel part of this. You'd feel part of this culture. Like we're not just coworkers, but we're friends. And how do we do that? If I never meet you ever, <laughs> you know, if it's been a right. year and I still never met you, that kind of thing. So that, that to me where some rub is. I completely agree with you. And I think those are the things that are really not measurable in the point that we're in, but I'll be yeah. very curious to see what the stats around that look like in three, four, five, six years where people that, you know, graduated college or, you know, were very junior in their career in 2020, where they're at at that point, how they feel about certain skills that were typically tied more to, you know, learning, again, learning through osmosis or just, you know, the sort of things that you, you, you learn from rubbing mm. elbows in the office or water cooler talk or overhearing someone saying something and out of curiosity, asking them what was going on. You know, so much of my day used to be that, or even used to be overhearing something that was, oh, wow, I overheard this. You know what? Actually, that doesn't matter, but this does matter. So I think we should refocus attention over here. And, you know, all of a sudden, what could have been two days of swirl and ambiguity yeah. becomes productive work for two days, you know? And I think all of those things are kind of invisible now because they're happening out in the ether and it's very difficult to quantify or measure them, but it's a very, it's a very tangible thing that impacts all of our business results. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, what gets you excited about what's going on in the, in the world of business right now? And you're like, what are you passionate about? What gets you excited? Um, I, I mean, I think, I think the the shift in culture and shift in sort of push for accountability among businesses and companies to be much more forthcoming about their values and shift in employees demanding more from companies is a really great thing. Mm. We've always been really committed to, you know, everything from general wellness in the workplace and mental health um, awareness and kind of focus on mental health in the workplace to, you know, just obviously equality in the workplace. I'm personally super passionate about the idea of mandatory maternity leave, or I'm sorry, parental leave. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of just understanding how from early on in careers, there is a delta where women account for, you know, I think over 50% of the sort of 
professional workforce coming out of school to ending up with these kind of abysmal numbers when you get to the C-suite. And that fall off happens pretty much with the immediate promotion to management. So why is that Mm. happening? And when does it get exacerbated? And I think something like parental leave where, you know, one, even I flipped and I said maternity leave. I am, I'm pregnant right now with my third child. And, you know, I find myself policing myself often to say parental leave because, you know, the fact that we call it maternity leave or paternity leave versus saying parental leave is parental leave. And when someone becomes a parent, they need to take X amount of time left. All of those things punished in their career is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's one, how do we make sure that men have the ability to take time off that they want to take when they become parents Two, that it's not left up to some manager to make them feel guilty or make them feel like they're not going to be able to pursue their own goals or, you know, be on a partner track or get that promotion if they do take that time off because they're perceived as less committed. Um, and three, that they get the time at home to help establish the, the sort of roles at home that create equality. And it's statistically proven that, you know, people are more happy in their marriages and in their partnerships when both take time off after having children and that there's a more equitable division of labor in the, in the household when men also take off for parental leave. Um, so I Man. think there's just like a huge ripple effect of if you make it mandatory for both and equal among both, all of a sudden, a lot of these kind of ingrained stereotypes and a lot of the things that really do impact women's career trajectory, sure. and especially in a post-real world where we're talking about a lot of women that will be having babies that they're not necessarily choosing to have. I think it's really important that we make sure that we're not as companies permeating the idea that because you're the woman, it's your job to put your career aside and stay home and take care of the baby. And I think that's something that is in the best interest of men and women. Most men want that time at home, right? So that's something that I'm super passionate about. And I think that type of conversation has really come to the forefront as a result of having a lot more conversations around equality in the workplace and you know, just around like kind of holding companies accountable to living by the values that they say are so important to them. Yeah. I mean, you bring up several, uh, um, kind of amazing subjects or worthy conversations all in one. Like one is, you know, I personally know more now that what really was zero to now several where the, the preferred dynamic between that couple was actually the, the dad staying home and the mom is, you know, an executive somewhere and they like that, you know, and it's only, I think, I'm just curious at how many more would be like that if you didn't feel like you're breaking some stereotype or you were embarrassed to be the guy who tells his friends like, actually, I just, I'm the stay at home dad, you know, or vice, you know, vice versa. The other that I've never thought about till you brought it up was I had one child while working a typical job and I had our last two kids. We have three kids, our last two kids while working for myself. And the experience was wildly different when I had two weeks to be home with our very first child, who, by the way, ended up having colic, and my wife had postpartum depression, which neither of those were cured in two weeks, right? Right. So two weeks is done, and I'm back to work, and I'm basically leaving every day scared, in a sense, like it's a new baby and all that stuff, but like my wife is not doing okay, and my baby is not doing okay, and I remember coming home one time, it was like 11 o'clock at night, I had to work a really late night, and I can hear the baby screaming as I'm coming up the driveway, And I walk in and my wife is just staring at a wall in the dark, just staring at a wall with the baby screaming, crying and her, she's like, no lights are on in the eyes. You know what I mean? And I was like, like, how am I not here? Like, this is like, this didn't get cured in two weeks, you know? And so the next two, when I worked for myself, it was like, there was no time. It was just like, when is, when are we stable? 
you know, like, right. When, you always got to balance it. Cause I was leading my own business. So there was elements of me having to work, but like my main priority is like, when are we stable? When do right. you feel good? When does a routine feel okay? Then I can ratchet back up. And I know that's the benefit, I guess, of working for yourself, but there's got, like you said, there's gotta be some more leniency of like, it doesn't work out to just two weeks or two months or whatever. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think just challenging yourselves as business leaders to think about how you can how you can address it on an equal level when you think about it as becoming a parent and needing time off yeah. to caretake versus you're giving someone time off because they gave birth. Yeah, um, yeah. Because those are two very different things. You must right? be tired. And I don't think... So you get, you get some time off for, for going through that process. Like that's not it. Right. right? <laughs> and like the, I think that's a very good example of treating a symptom versus treating a problem yeah. is not understanding the ripple effect of inequality in the workplace that happens hmm. when, you know, the man is there because he feels forced to be there. And he's like, well, I better make partner now because I made this sacrifice inherently when there isn't a woman there on the other side of that, that is an innate, that is innately unequal, right? Yeah. Or the fact that the woman is at home for an extended amount of time establishing things like schedules and isms of the baby, where then, you know, it's not like there's any bad intention on anyone's part, but you're the one who knows it. So you go back to work being that primary caretaker and inherently you're going to take on more of that responsibility at home we all have the same 24 hours in a day. Right. So how does that in aggregate impact women and their ability to, you know, have the same level of commitment at work? And I don't even mean, I shouldn't even say commitment, but just have the same availability right. to work that their male counterparts would. And what are we um, missing out on business? What, exactly. are we, what are we missing out on business if women are from that point on punished and not able to give their gift as fully as they would if we knew how to work with that situation. Let's say they were the primary caregiver. We're missing out on all that skill set in the workforce from baby on, you know? A hundred percent. I mean, even down to, you know, how many women have you spoken to who, you know, when they get pregnant, they're like, I can't interview for a job. Right. Or they're they're I really worried about telling their boss that they're pregnant, right? You don't hear men ever be anxious about that. They're not anxious. They don't feel like they have to tell a new job that their wife is pregnant. And you don't feel men nervous about bringing that up in the office because it's just not perceived as something that's going to impact their commitment to their job or their trajectory in their job. Um, and I think this type of thing where you're anticipating, regardless of the gender or regardless of, you know, even, you know, same sex couples and things like that, it just creates yeah. like innate equality no matter who you are. And if you are becoming a parent, you're going to take this much time off and you won't be here where everyone is then assessed on an even playing field. Yeah. Yep. That's really good. I love that. Oh, man, I'm so glad I got to bring uh, or ask you that question because I don't think we've had a chance to talk about that that in depth here. And it's not like there's easy answers. Well, I mean, in some sense there is. You, I think you put forward a very easy answer, which is kind of the mandatory irregardless. Like we're get, we're telling you, you get this time, right? I think the conversations that opens up though is going to require maturity is going to require people to be willing to think differently and uh, really have an honest conversation instead of sticking to whatever your talking points are like most things in the country right now. So uh, yes. <laughs> I appreciate you being here and, and bringing that point of view. Um, I know we're coming up on time. So uh, just the last question I always love to ask is uh, kind of a connoisseur of great books or great thinkers that we can all learn from. Uh, for you, has there been any uh, book or thinker or thing that has really helped you in the position you find yourself in uh, that we could recommend to our audience? Yeah, um, Radical Candor by Kim Scott was hugely impactful for me. I think 
as I kind of scaled my role in the company uh, and went from honestly being more junior where you're friends with everybody and you're kind of part of the crew going out to then holding everyone accountable. I think getting comfortable with having those blunt conversations and realizing yeah. how it's actually better for the employees and better for them to sort of get comfortable with, with feedback and knowing that that's going to help them in their trajectory and in their growth. I think that was really an impactful moment for me when I read that book and she just described it in such a sort of like direct and concise way that I, I found to be really impactful. Heck yeah. I love radical candor. That was a great suggestion. Okay. Lauren, thank you so much for being here today. This has been a fantastic conversation. I know I've learned a bunch and I guarantee our audience has as well. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Great talking to you. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.